Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you and praise you for the greatest gift you have given us, Christ Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Prepare our hearts to receive your word so that we may delight in him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's kind of continue the ch children's theme for just a moment. How many of you ever had a Connect the Dot coloring book when you were a kid? Did you ever have one of those? Couple? Some people don't want to admit it. Okay. But it was kind of cool because you get this book and you get your colors and you connect the dots and you go, oh, and you say, look, it's a picture of, and it would be a picture of whatever it might be, a star, a, a horse. And you were like, wow, isn't that cool? Well, you and I, for those who have been here through Advent and through today, we have been actually doing connect the dots. We have been taking a look at the Old Testament and finding the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament and connecting it to the New. I found this picture online and I really liked it because the word Jesus is spelled out with all of the books of the Bible. It's really neat if you get a chance to, to maybe I'll show it afterwards. But we are connecting the dots. And so we've spent all of our time, except for one time in Zephaniah, in uh, Isaiah. And we have seen that Jesus is our peace. He is our hope. In him we have assurance. We have been seeing a greater picture of Jesus. And isn't that what we do every week? Every week we get to see who Jesus is more and more. And the purpose of this is so that we delight in him more and more. So today we're going to continue because it's still Christmas. It's still Christmas, and we are going to do a little bit more connect the dots. And we are going to spend some time in Isaiah again. As I've done each and every time, let me give you a little bit of context for the reading for Isaiah. So, in chapter 41 of Isaiah, the Lord has been giving a strong rebuke to idolatry. And that's what the issue was. It was idolatry. And the last verse of Isaiah chapter 41 sums it up really well. This is what the Lord God has to say regarding idolatry. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So all of the things that people were praying to, all of these little, maybe a golden calf. Nowadays, we would say crystals, right? Something like that. God says in the strongest language... Behold, they are a delusion. People who are worshiping idols aren't just off track. They aren't just misguided. God says they're a delusion and it's all empty wind. Now, it's really easy to think that, oh, well, that was Israel back then, you know, 2,700 years ago. We don't have that now. We've evolved. We're more sophisticated no, the morality of man has not improved. If you take a look, we are a very idolatrous nation. Very much so. We worship at the altar of materialism. Think about all the Christmas hoopla that's been going on, right? If people didn't buy all that stuff, my guess, I'm not an economist, but I guess if people didn't do all the Christmas shopping in the fourth quarter... 
that our economy would collapse and we would probably see a severe depression. So yes, there is the idolatry, the altar of materialism, but most, most destructively is worshiping at the altar of self-aggrandizement or the fulfillment and worshiping of self. We see this in how people eat, how people drink. We see it specifically now. It's just rampant in sexuality and gender. This is an idolatry of self. Back then and now, idolatry has three core parts to it. John wrote about this in 1 John For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is not of the world. So the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has been rebuking Israel for idolatry. He says, behold, look at that. And then he says, behold, I am sending you a servant of the Lord, who through humbleness and compassion will bring justice and everlasting covenant. So let's go through our text from Isaiah. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. The Lord God has said, Look, all that idolatry, now behold, look. In strongest terms, that's what behold means. Look, my servant. All of the things you have done, don't look at them anymore. Look at who I have given you. And I want you to notice something. I want you to notice all the pronouns in there. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. You have to understand, it is the Lord God Yahweh, the great I am, who is proclaiming who this servant is. If there's any doubt in your reading today, just look at verse 5 and 8. It says, The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, and who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. Verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It's impossible for me to fully explain the power and weight of this one verse. Because God, the sovereign God, the great I am, the mighty and powerful God who by his very word said, let there be, and there was, said, behold, this is my servant. I'm, I don't give my glory to any other, but here, the full spirit of the Lord is upon this servant. Behold, my servant. See, we need to sit down. We need uh, not sit, sit down. We need to sit up. Did that wrong. We need to sit up and pay attention to this because not only is this the one that God has chosen, but it says this, in whom my soul delights. Now, if you were here last week, you remember I talked about how that word delight in the Hebrew has a sense of smelling with pleasure. And I gave the example 
of a woman holding a newborn. Do you remember all the ladies? And, and what do you do with a newborn? You have to take in that smell, right? Well, this is the delight that Jesus has for the Father. And now here in Isaiah, it says this is the delight that the Lord has for his servant. Think about that. The infinite, majestic love of God. The fullness of his love. And he says, my soul delights in him. That that just makes me pause for a while. That God has his whole soul delight in Jesus. That I could even have a smidgen of that. Right? Right? That would just overwhelm one. Now, it also says that the Lord God sent his servant. Servant is a very important word here. It's used throughout Scripture, 800 times at least in the Old Testament. It can refer to somebody who is a slave, although not in the uh, pure sense that we hold it now, in a different sense. It could refer to an officer close to the king, or it could refer to a chosen leader of God's people. So it could be Moses, it could be David, but here, the servant is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Not one of many, but the servant. Now we could connect a lot of different dots, but I've done that for you already in the text because we have from our gospel reading. In our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 12, verse 17 and 18, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Listen, if you really took a moment, if you took a moment and just worked with that one verse from Isaiah, it should get you excited. You should be like Zacchaeus. You remember the wee little Zacchaeus, right? He was so excited to see the Lord, he scrambled up that sycamore tree, right? Because he was wondering, who is this Jesus? He hadn't seen him before. What's the picture? What does he look like? Who is this? Is he a conquering hero? Is he going to come in a white steed? What is the very nature of the Savior? Zacchaeus would have been surprised as he was. You and I should be a little surprised too. Because he comes in humbleness and compassion. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break or a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He's gentle. A bruised reed he won't break. So the reed that they talk about here is actually uh, a reed that was used for a pen. But you know that a reed would break easily, so it would be discarded. And that's how people were often seen as just something to discard. If you were in Rome and you had a little child girl, you might just discard her because she wasn't going to be of any worth. So that's the value that people had. So when he's talking about a broken reed, 
it, it has a great depth to it. And also that there's a, a, a candle wick that is burnt, it's not doing well, that it would be quenched out, that all life and light would be gone, and so the people would be in darkness. Now, this was a situation for the nation of Israel. They were in captivity. They were in political bondage. They were under oppression. And they also had the oppression of living up to all of the heathen rituals that they had. They were crushed. They were broken. In Jesus' day, the people were also crushed and broken. But they were crushed and broken because of the Pharisees. They were crushed and broken because the Pharisees put a yoke of heavy law upon them. Remember from our gospel reading, Jesus was going to heal a man with a withered hand and the Pharisees didn't want him to because he was going to break the Sabbath. They had put people under a yoke that God had not intended. Thus, when Jesus says this, it refers to the yoke of religious oppression You know this one. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Look, today a lot of people are still under the yoke of religious oppression. And I don't mean other religions, I mean within Christianity, in which faith becomes all law. You must do this, and there's no gospel preached. And thus people continually work under that yoke, and they get tired, and they are broken. But there are other people, too, who take it to the next level and said, well, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be the top of my game. And you've seen so many books about that, the top of the game, but invariably they stumble and fall. Chuck Colson in Nixon's administration was one of those top political people. He was basically at the top of the world and he fell and he fell hard, didn't he? And he ended up going to prison where he was broken. And there, Christ came to him. Now, it's really interesting that his prison fellowship ministry, do you know what the symbol is for his ministry? A broken reed. He knew what it meant to be broken. You see, the servant is a suffering servant. Jesus came that there might be healing of the bruised, for he himself became like us, a bruised reed. Another servant section from Isaiah is chapter 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus the servant came for the people who were bruised, who are broken, who are under oppression. He also said he would not quench that wick, that he would not extinguish what little faith that there was, but he would actually bring the light and bring the faith to the people. There are three scripture readings I want to point out here. One, Isaiah chapter 9 
And you know this, we say this all throughout Advent and Christmas, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then finally, John chapter 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the servant that God sent to you and me. This is the servant. He is gentle, but he is not weak. And though people mocked him and despised him, he did not and will not grow weary because he is the servant who will bring forth justice. It says, I'm just going to read the last part. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So listen, justice is a word that gets used a lot nowadays and it gets mangled. I mean, there's social justice, there's climate justice, and often that word justice isn't used for justice, it's used as a weapon. But let's put that aside for now. When we talk about justice, what do we mean? Think about that. We talk about justice, but what is justice? In some sense, at a fundamental level, it is about what is morally right or morally fair. Now, for those who uh, have been with me, you know that I was on jury duty for a week. And that, you know, the sense of justice was there. We actually had a really good jury pool, and we were there, and Even though we had different ideas of how justice should be dealt out, we were all driven by a sense that there should be justice. And we worked very hard to try to find what was fair and just. And as a matter of fact, we laid blame on everyone. We did. We meted out blame for everyone. And the judge actually said he would have done the same thing. So it was pretty interesting. But where does this sense of justice come from? Because we all have it. We all have a a sense of justice. Well, the sense of justice comes from God himself. Justice is part of God's very nature. I liked how one person put it. Justice is not an optional product of his will, but an unchangeable principle of his very nature. In other words, God cannot cannot not be just. Had to take a moment on that one. God cannot not be just. He must be just all the time. For those who are taking notes, uh, here's an extra one for you. Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. You see, God's justice is always tied to his righteousness and his holiness. And his very nature demands perfect righteous, perfect holiness, and thus perfect judgment, perfect justice. You see, sin, right? Sin against a holy God. There is a penalty that must be paid. Adam and Eve, they were living in the Garden of Eden. They had a, a wonderful 
relationship with God, and then they sinned. And because of that sin, there was blame, shame, alienation, work became toil, and then they were banished. See, there is a penalty for sin. But God's justice is not our justice. And we thank God for that, don't we? God's justice is not our justice. Because God's justice is always combined with love and mercy and grace. And what you find throughout Scripture is that His justice is always provided for those who aren't under oppression, especially for the most vulnerable. Deuteronomy chapter 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God is a God of justice. So, this servant, this servant's going to bring justice but not just to Israel, he's going to bring it to the whole world. The servant will bring justice to the entire world, and he will do so by living a life you should have lived and dying a death you should die. So he brings justice in the form of the gospel message because he himself paid the penalty. So here we have a servant, a servant of the Lord who is gentle and humble, who will bring justice, and he is our covenant. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have passed. The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you. So God has told the Israelites, I'm telling you now what will happen. Now, covenant. Covenant is a word that you and I don't use nowadays. We live actually in a contract world. You buy a car, there's a contract. You have a mortgage, there's a contract. Uh, Even with your credit card companies, there's a contract, in essence, that you have to agree to. And this contractual world that we live in says, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. And if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then there's going to be a problem. This sense of contracts has even invaded all of our relationships. The whole idea of a prenuptial contract? What kind of marriage is that when there's a prenuptial contract? Shouldn't it be a covenant? See, a covenant is different than a contract. Let me give you an example. The Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 men knowing full well that the penalty would, uh, would be paid if they were captured, and the penalty was death. The concluding sentence of this declaration says, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred 
honor. That wasn't a contract they signed, was it? That was an unconditional covenant that they made with each other. An unconditional covenant means upholding your side, even if the other side does not. And this is what God has done with us in Christ Jesus. Though the the world has fallen, though there is sin, though people continually fall short, he in Christ Jesus has kept his covenant. You see, this child that was born, who would grow up to be the man, the savior of the world, he isn't just a good moral example. He isn't just a good teacher. He himself is the covenant of God. See, when you approach the throne of God and Christ Jesus is there, you approach the covenant that God has made with you, that God upholds even though you do not. And this covenant was made in his blood. And we celebrate this covenant every week. Where do we celebrate this covenant every week? In communion, in the Lord's Supper. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Look, this is what God was declaring in Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This is what Jesus fulfilled by living a perfect life and dying the death that you and I should have died. So that in Christ Jesus, you and I are restored, our Savior. So, do you have a fuller picture of Jesus here? Connecting some of the dots from the old to the new? I'm going to connect one more dot, and it comes at the very end of the Bible. The very end of the Bible, and there's another behold. And this is Christ Jesus now himself. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Behold, Christ the King, our Savior, our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. So this week, two questions. I'd like you to just ponder this statement. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that you and I should have died. How is this justice? And the second is God's soul delights in his servant Jesus. Does your soul delight in Jesus? And all the people said, Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. Dot com.